Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Hello, today is February uh, 17th, and we mm-hmm. are uh, going to talk today... From a safe distance. From a safe distance. Yeah, I've got a little bit of a cold. Uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about energy, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the STIP and other weird, wibbly, mi- missed stuff. opportunities. Yeah. So uh, let's jump into energy. Uh, this this whole session has had a really big education focus, but I think energy has also been this like pretty loud beating drum in the background. What's happening is that Anchorage is on this precipice of not having enough gas to essentially fulfill need, uh, which means importing gas at a greater cost or building a pipeline or solving the problem in some other way. Essentially, what it looks like is um, there's going to be a patchwork quilt of very expensive solutions. Does that sound like a good summation or am I missing pieces? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think the big question here uh, at the heart of legislative discussions right now is, you know, basically why aren't the Cook Inlet gas fields like developing or being produced like we think they should be? There's a lot of different reasons for that, kind of really depending on who you ask, right? So there's logistical sort of infrastructure challenges for the smaller market of gas, but you ask other people and they, you know, they, there's sort of accusations that the producers in the basin are, you know, intentionally not developing, sort of keeping the prices high. Uh, and, and right now, so we, you know, had a couple of series of hearings this couple of weeks ago about it, where, you know, the answer is, you know, if you've been following oil and gas issues in Alaska, it might sound a little familiar, which is uh, fiscal certainty through tax relief and maybe some guaranteed loans. So I think there's a lot of hesitation to like, do that again and we have done that we've done that we've done that a lot of times and uh you know there was a credit program for the cook inlet area that really didn't work the way that they thought it would it's kind of considered to be a failure of a effort and so you know they're they're talking now instead of doing credits there would be like a foregone taxes but the 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 end result is that the companies want to pay less in you know money to the state and they might produce more and in economic so. terms that kind of mm-hmm. makes sense but that's then the state kind of subsidizing the the gas for the anchorage area and i think that there's a desire to avoid importing gas there's like a little bit of a it feels like there's a little bit of an embarrassment factor to that of yeah. like this alaska being Certainly. this great uh petroleum state but i i think that it's from everything i've been hearing it seems almost inevitable that that's going to be the solution that we land on at least in the short term well that was the interesting thing though is that the latest hearing you know, sort of the fallback has sort of been considered to be this plan of importing. But the um, the revelation, I think, at this last hearing was that even if we wanted to do the importing stuff, it wouldn't it would actually come online after a lot of the gas challenge stuff starts to rear its head. Right. So importing isn't even going to arrive fast enough like that. That timeline yeah. for importing isn't tomorrow. It's not next year. It's it's like what? It's 2030 like or something. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, they've talked about like maybe having to do other bridge stuff, which would be like, I think the imported gas is like 50% more. Whereas I think the other options that they've not really talked about in a ton of detail are like 300% more. Wow. So uh, it will be very interesting to see how it goes forward. But again, I think there's a lot of, I think reticence on the part of legislators to, 
you know, sign over the farm on this one. So, you know, there's other talks about other infrastructure elements, uh, the gas interchange. Uh, there's talk about, you know, firing up coal plants again, um, that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of other options on the table, I think, but um, it'll be interesting to see what moves forward here. Are renewables part of the discussion at all? Like when we're talking about spending a bunch of money, why are we spending it on charging up coal-fired plants instead of moving forward? Well, part of the thing, you know, is this idea of like deliverability of ga- of energy a- a- on certain times, right? Because natural gas has the benefit of being able to like be spun up, mm-hmm. you know, when you need it, you can turn on the faucet, right? And you make more energy, <laughs> sure, I guess, faucet, yeah. in, in very, very simplified terms, right? Yeah. Uh, but and so I think at least that's, you know, my in my coverage of it, that's sort of the, the complaint with wind or, or other forms of renewables is that they're not as dependable, you need battery banks, and those are big other pieces of infrastructure upgrades. And, and it was all highlighted too. There was this big cold snap in Anchorage a couple weeks ago, where it got like really cold for Anchorage. Um, and then they talked about the utilities were saying that they nearly ran out of gas during that time. But you know, it, again, it wasn't necessarily because of the the drilling or anything, like, or it was it was because of like infrastructure issues along the way with how the storage is working, with how the wells were delivering gas into it. So there were like it's not quite a supply issue, but it is an issue, basically. Is that like a throughput issue? Like if everyone turns their faucet on at once, there's not quite enough for all of it at yes. once, essentially? Yeah. 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 I mean, so the demands were extremely high. Yeah. You know, homes were heating. They, I think the military base here ended up having to, like, turn down the thermostats and yeah. stuff. So I keep using the word faucet now. Um, so from, a, like, a logistics standpoint, are we talking about home heating exclusively? Like people are burning natural gas for heat or are we talking about uh, natural gas is being used to create electricity to power people's homes um and both okay so both and is the home heating thing like a bigger part of that because if you've got you know hundreds of homes that are all designed to be heated off natural gas the conversion cost probably quite uh expensive yes yeah so that is part of it right and actually so it's an interesting element when we talk about like what the solutions are coming forward I think that uh, Senator Lyman Hoffman has brought it up at several points along the way. Is that like, hey, isn't one of the really good ways of uh, addressing this is is reducing the demand of energy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the state used to have a lot of weatherization programs. Um, There's the home energy rebate, and then there was like a low uh, income qualifying program too. And I actually covered it for the news miner, and it was like this amazing thing where they were going in, and typically they were replacing like an old inefficient furnace with a you know a modern clean burning one yeah, or putting or double pane glass yeah right and so it's interesting because if you look at um the energy demands in south central they have been going down and part of it's because like the fertilizer plant's not there anymore for example but like i think it's sort of been trending downwards as, as far as that goes and that then makes it the demand makes the supply issue a little more difficult too because the market for the gas is getting smaller actually so right so if we continue to like underfund our schools and no one has a reason to live here then the demand goes down and we've solved our problem (laughs) right yeah (laughs) fewer alaskans yeah Yeah. i mean the energy problem seems like it's gonna from what i've been reading it sounds like about 2027 ish uh maybe earlier maybe a little later kind of depending on those demand uh supply and demand questions uh it seems like we're gonna have kind of a bumpy road in anchorage until some other solution comes online and that's maybe about 2030 um and so mm-hmm. there could be a few rough years ahead right yeah and i think the thing is too is that like 
you know, I, I think it's yeah, the, the scale and scope of the issues, right? Because it's Anchorage, because it's South Central is like very large, yeah, right? Half but the state. Like, I think I think a lot of people are looking at this, you know, a lot of other legislators are looking at this and going, yeah, it's a major issue, but energy issues have long been a major issue for most of Alaska yeah. that, you know, a lot of places would kill to even have the higher rates that Anchorage is looking at paying. So yeah. it's kind of uncertain as to what they're going to do about the gas supply. But I think it sounds like there's a lot of interest on like uh, the inner tie upgrades. It's like how they transmit electricity around South Central that is been due for an upgrade so that sounds like that's you know got more broad support more right. broad agreement that that's something that needs to be done but the th- yeah like the, the the scale of the price increases as somebody who pays for gas here uh yeah it would suck yeah put it put it in buxton terms for me what does that mean for you if you're if your prices increase 50 percent or 300 percent? what does that what does that look like i don't know yeah. our costs have been increasing right we'd look at uh groceries for example uh if you look we, we've found some old receipts from like you know buying groceries a couple of years ago and it's like startling right and so uh you know it definitely changes how you approach things right how well, what you're spending money on what you're uh, investing in you might be buying less magic cards for example <laughs> <laughs> okay so that's where the that's where the yeah. hit is all right <laughs> the magic card economy is going to take a hit um the uh, an interesting piece that's kind of tied to this is like the um, the gas line. And I know there's a report that, that just came out. They had kind of the executive pay status. Um, Alaska's top <laughs> paid executive is the president of the gas line corporation. Mm-hmm. And that's almost about half a million dollars a year. Um, so how's that coming along for our, our uh, 500,000 that we're paying? It doesn't seem like it. I mean, that's the thing. It's the, we put so much money into the gas line. Didn't we put like three hundred million into it under Palin at I, some point? Was yeah, it, it was like, I uh, like. I feel like now. I feel like the it's like a rite of passage for becoming an Alaskan is like to go through several cycles of believing a gas line is just around the corner. Right. Like now, I know. Now I understand why. When I was like in the early two thousand tens and getting all excited about gas lines to Fairbanks. That a lot of people were like, eh, I don't know, I'll see, I'll see it when it happens, yeah. and it still hasn't happened. So Frank Murkowski um, was talking about it in like 2003 and four or something like that, and it was you know that was like the his going to big his big signature project was the Alaska gas yeah. line. So there's so building the full gas line is about a 40 billion dollar project, uh, and that's that's gas that we can then export, and then building the bullet line, which is like a smaller diameter pipeline, that's meant to serve in-state needs is more of like a 10 billion dollar project yeah and and there's sort of questions over whether the smaller line would actually deliver economical gas right Right. that it would be so expensive and i even remember looking at it back then too it's like uh fairbanks is pulling gas off of it the amount of infrastructure that would be needed to do it it would be pretty close to where we were at with heating oil at the time so uh, it would have been like a, it would have been less, right? And it would have been a stable supply of it, and that has its own been a cleaner supply, and that would have all had its benefits. But uh, it was expensive, and I think and so there a lot of the talk, you know, when we're coming out of this was immediately for a lot of people to say, no way are we looking at a bullet line, not interested in it. We know it's not economical, uh, so if we're gonna do one, we're gonna do a big one. But again, like that's a, you know, 
where are you going to get forty billion dollars to build a gas pipeline? Yeah, and I mean, and then is our is our gas? When you talk about economics of this of the problem, like is our gas actually exportable? Is it a price that anyone's willing to pay once it comes down that pipeline? Right. Once <laughs> we built our forty right. billion dollar pipeline, can you do you then have gas that is you know like three times? Is it three times as much as what the market rate yeah. is? Or well, is it, and that's and that's or is it competitive? And it kind of, I think it kind of gets to why like the Cook Inlet area is having troubles, right? Because gas is, you know, the profit margins are more narrow on gas than it is on oil. There are like other sort of infrastructure challenges with it. The market's not near. So all this sort of stuff combines to make it like not the most uh, appealing thing to to do, really. Like you can make better money drilling oil. So um, that's kind of the, the sort of complicated sort of issues with it. And that's like, you know, it's interesting that we were kind of uh, in these hearings, it was really reminding me of like a lot of the conversations we were having a decade ago where, you know, there's a big industry call for lower taxes and state spending. And meanwhile, a lot of people are going, well, isn't it an infrastructure issue? There's access issues. There's like all these other issues that we aren't really talking about. And a lot of people are running to the sort of the cut the taxes solution when other people are pointing out that there are other ways of doing it. So yeah. I hope you yeah, I hope you're looking forward to paying for my oil, my gas bill. Yeah. Helping subsidize it, Alaska. It, it it is an interesting thing of, you know, like it, when it's an emergency in Anchorage, it's an emergency, but when it's an emergency in Bethel, it isn't. You know, it's Yeah. Um and I understand there's a lot of population gravity, but like just a couple of years ago we were talking about eliminating power cost equalization and now we're talking about subsidizing Anchorage's electricity. So that's like imagine if we had cut power cost equalization and then turned around and used that money to subsidize Anchorage's power bill. That would be a pretty bad look. Yeah. So it's changing the subject here. I'd, I'd be interested in talking about this kind of emergent news uh, around the STIP. It's a transportation plan that goes to the federal government. The DOT does, uh, I, I, I know I'm new to this. This sounds like they DOT does this about every four years and they put in a bunch of um, they do a bunch of community outreach, and then they supposed to um, do a bunch of community outreach. Well, yeah, I was getting that. They, so they do a bunch of community outreach, and then they build up this transportation plan using that community input, and then they submit it to the federal government, and then they have a, you know, a, a bunch of money comes in over the over the following four years. In this case, we're talking like five billion dollars worth of federal funds matched with like five hundred million of state funds. A pretty good ratio. Uh, in terms of our investment to, to what we get back from it from the feds. And um, and a lot of projects that are really important, uh, they create a lot of jobs and they, uh, you know, allow us to navigate the state and they move those resources that everyone's so excited about. But what happened is that they kind of screwed this one up and they now have about two weeks to fix the STIP and send it back to the federal government. And uh, it's really unclear how challenging that might be. It sounds like they went about the process all wrong, that they didn't involve communities, that communities for uh, over a year have been saying that they haven't been involving yeah. communities and like <laughs> making a lot of noise about it. And I'm sure you listened to that uh, and have been covering it. I'd love to hear kind of what, what what is going on there. What do I have right? What do I have wrong? What am I, what's what's happening? What do people it, need to know? It's yeah, very I mean, complicated. It's pretty accurate. But yeah, I, I agree that, I mean, this is like one of the more wonky elements of, how state government like works right like there's this sort of process where you have they call them municipal planning organizations so in fairbanks uh the one that i was familiar with is the fmats the fairbanks metropolitan area 
transportation system, which is now FAST planning, Fairbanks Area Surface Transportation Planning. Anyway, so... Great acronym for a traffic uh, roads yeah, uh, so advisory like it, group. It was this thing that, like, you know, I guess the, the way that like, I look at it is that when I was reporting on it, it was this, like, kind of unclear group. But now as I'm coming, you know, as it's sort of... Its authority was like unclear to me, but now as we are starting getting back and further wider out in the process, it's really important. So basically, you know, the state interacts with the feds to, you know, to help dole out and direct, you know, all this federal highway funding. And then you have to lay out, uh, you know, the, the projects, the costs, the timelines, all this sort of stuff, all these different justifications for all these different pools of federal money. And a really important part of that is that local communities where these projects are happening are supposed to have input on them and, and so they, and really drive the process right yeah and so you can't the like the federal law like literally says you can't have projects in here that are not part of local that haven't been approved into local transportation plans and so oh, wow it's just you know and i think it's interesting there's an interesting sort of backdrop of it wall which is that like when I was covering the Fairbanks, you know, formulation like three cycles ago, four cycles ago at this point, three, three cycles ago, three cycles ago, 12 years ago, uh, a lot of it was, um, you know, it wasn't like a highly engaged process. You know, they were doing these hearings, they were doing these outreach, you would get people here and there, you would get kind of open houses where people would be looking at the projects. Um, but it's really changed in the last like couple of years, um, especially in Fairbanks, where what's going on there is there is this like ore haul trucking plan from uh, uh, the Mancho. Is the Kinross? Yeah. So it goes from like outside of Toke to north of Fairbanks at Fort Knox. And so mm -hmm. the most sort of like cost effective for the company trip route takes them over these old bridges that really are like fine as they are but if you want to be driving these huge trucks over them you need to probably replace them right so the local community is not asking for this the community has their own concerns about like the safety of all these trucks on the roads the wear and tear on the roads but the governor is a huge fan of mines right and uh, he loves mines and so uh, he's been helping put this project kind of on the fast track the whole way through there's been concerns about how um, the project has been approved, how these like transportation plans have been reviewed, whether or not they're like basically whether or not the Dunleavy administration's kind of had their like thumb on the scale. Well, they didn't do the community outreach, so it came from somewhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. They're and, saying it's not a top-down process, but it it magically materialized yeah. in, within this project. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's a mid-down process from like, all the guys that you appointed and put in there, right? So yeah. like. Uh, it's hard to me. It's like it's such a bullshit, like yeah. to defense to say to claim it's not right. Um, I didn't do this. Uh, who out did that get in there? Yeah, and so, but the the way the this sort of top down approach has really pissed off people in Fairbanks, and and so what we've seen this year is not only have the governor sort of been out of line with the process, but he's also kind of rattled everyone's cages in a way that has made them like much more engaged. So a lot of the talk this time is how there's been like a, 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 a several orders of magnitude more public involvement this time around. People have been much more sophisticated about commenting on it. And it's hard to ignore like thousands of comments of that were saying, hey, they're they're, you know, violating the law and, and violating the, the, all this federal rules for it. And so surprise, 
this didn't work out. Everyone's sort of priority, right, is like getting this done in two weeks because if it's not done in two weeks, then we're gonna have a lapse where the, the state can't spend any money at all, even money that had been approved under the previous plan, it's like a hundred million dollars that would go out this summer. So they're all, you know, trying to get that done. But I think there's like this big backdrop of like how much of this is Dunleavy's, you know, meddling and how much of it is like just Dunleavy's incompetence kind of, you know, these sort of agencies that have been hollowed out of a lot of, you know, institutional knowledge and replaced with, you know, Dunleavy loyalists. Right. Right. And I, and I think that there's a major question here. you yeah. got a guy who came you got a guy who came in issued a loyalty pledge, got rid of a bunch of like people that wouldn't sign it, got rid of like anyone that he perceived as a threat and then replaced them all with like sycophants who have no experience. And so now you've got a, you've got a department of transportation that doesn't have any experience putting together this kind of a four-year plan and apparently didn't lean on anyone that did. Um, yeah. and now they've got 2 weeks to figure it all out and it's going to be a, it seems like a difficult thing to untangle if it's going to require them to go back and try and seek that community input that they didn't seek already. I mean, there's no way at this point, there is no way they can get that done in. So they'll probably just have to offload projects, right? Yeah. That's sort of what is is looking like right now is they're going to have to like, just cut stuff from it. Um, Yeah. So this transportation plan is going to lose a bunch of projects just so that it can get through and get the green light and not mm -hmm. hold everything up. And then even that is going to be a little bit iffy, even though the, I, 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 man, I tried to read through some of this stuff, and it is just alphabet soup of like yeah. acronyms and federal legalese and and you know references to other documents that aren't attached, and it was just it was very difficult. Um, but it sounds like they did give a very good point by point. You know, here's what you need to do to fix this, and so it does seem like it's salvageable. It doesn't seem like it's a big question. Um, it seems like if they take out a couple of these projects and make a couple of corrections, they can probably get a sort of a bare bones transportation plan through and then do some amendments later. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that what it looks like? That's kind of what they're thinking. It's going to be interesting because so the, the hearing um, this week in house transportation between the committee and department of transportation commissioner, Ryan Anderson is really interesting because he kind of characterized like the whole thing is like a, they were just shocked that the federal government would dare. We thought it was all fine, you know, mm-hmm. and and there's a little bit there's a little level of, oh, it's just the feds hate us. The feds hate us, you know, and yeah, the but we're the is, only state. We're that, literally the only state. Every yeah. other state, you know, has, and not only has every other state like had them approved, but they had them approved like months ago. Like Alaska has been working on an extension for several months because they already missed the submission deadline for it. And then we got it in late and then we got it rejected. So, uh, and even like, I think Murkowski even had a line about this. Uh, she had her, uh, her, her address uh, address to the legislature this week and was talking to reporters afterwards. And I think what was her quote said, um, she was talking about, you know, talking to Dunleavy about basically just like, just fix it. And he said, I'm going to urge him, that this is not the time to say, well, it's the Biden administration and they're just out to get us. Yeah, that's a good line. I mean, that's yeah. the, that's his go to harumph harumph. And it's- I think that like, you know, and it, it might, you know, people, there are certainly people who are prime people, legislators, outlets that are primed to believe that line. Right. To believe sure. that 
it's just Biden after it. But it's like they said that they were been in you know conversation with the federal government for you know more than a year about these problems, and somehow it was a surprise. And yeah, you're the only one that failed your homework, and and it's hard to find in recent history another state that's done that. Yeah, like I I went looking for like when was the last time another step like this has had a pro a problem that was you know big news, and I I had trouble coming up with anything. Yeah, and I think, like, to get on my soapbox for a minute, too, I think it's, like, really representative of how the Dunleavy administration has, like, operated, right? There's this question that they had during um, this this big, weird, rambling news conference oh uh, that you had the wonderful supercut of. There was an answer he had in that that was about um, these executive orders, right? These, these sort of wide-reaching executive orders that are... It's sort of unprecedented use of executive orders to reorganize Alaska government. And one of the questions from Mark Sabatini at Juno Empire was, well, how does this work? Like, how does this make the system better? How does having less people importing the Alaska Marine Highway Operations Board, how is that better? And Dunleavy, like, kind of was frank about it. He said, basically, because they'll listen to me, right? He says that, like, you know, the, the whole, he was arguing that, like, it's good that the the executive has all the power and that it would you know they would be rolling in their grave if they saw how much uh power the legislature had and it's important you know it's like why does it help it helps because if someone doesn't agree with me then we can't do what we want to do and it's like you know i th i almost like wouldn't be surprised if the solution here for dunleavy is that we're going to pass a state law that says Dunleavy gets to appoint all these local transportation boards, right? Like, is that the, maybe that's the solution? And so, I mean, it really, I, to me, is like very emblematic of this like, we know how to do it. We know how to bend the rules just right. Just trust us. We know it. We know the rules. And it's like, time and again, they've improved that's not the case, right? They don't know the rules, that they're bending them. You know, they have these like legal analysis, these legal memos that justify their actions that don't stand up. And it, it's getting expensive. You know, this is, you know, we, there were several elements of government right now. You know, we look at the food stamp program that's underwater. Uh, there was a report this week that the state hasn't expended like millions of dollars of federal funds that are specifically designed to help homeless youth. And we're like running up against the deadline to spend those. And it's like, yeah. They argue about the mismanagement of the school districts. They claim that they are not being run properly. And it's like, meanwhile, your financial house isn't in order. Their budget has a billion dollar deficit. They're not even spending basically the free money that we get from the feds. You know, you know, right. There's strings attached to it. But we're not you're not even deploying the money that we do have. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. wild. He talked about, I'm just going to play a couple of clips here. They talk, He talked about staying up all night and like reading the constitution and like really understanding it in a way that like you and I couldn't even possibly conceive of. And, and, and I'm going to just, can I, we'll just play a bunch of clips from this press conference because it's absurd and, and hilarious and sad. It's afternoon. It's afternoon guys. Um, anyway, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. And so we wanted to, uh, call a press conference so you guys could ask as many questions as possible on education. The help that a lot of school districts want is just the BSA, and that's like some type of salve or poultice. You put it on a wound and it makes it better. I don't know what it really means. If I stood at this microphone today and just said, we're going to shove in with a D9, tons of money into the BSA, and that's it, I'd be lauded as a hero. But I didn't run on that ticket. 
Okay, there's going to be some people that anything Dunleavy do, does is, is for nefarious reasons, okay? People that run for office get a lot of donations for a lot of reasons. You guys having your own, you guys having your own press conference or what? No, oh. Public schools, in my opinion, have been really damaged by politics. Yeah, and I'm a politician. And I would bet my retirement. If you just put money in the BSA, there'll be no change in performance. So charter schools, charter schools have a much more narrow focus. And as a result, it appeals to a cross-section or a section of, I should say, of society in Alaska. What is it you want all of our schools to do? Because it should be reading, writing, and math at the top, as opposed to just equity, just um, uh, historically underserved people. Our charter schools are actually doing better because of kids uh, that aren't white. This is not a game. This is not a political game. This is not something Dunleavy's doing for re-election. Sean, you're gonna hear a lot of weird things here if you haven't already. Um, and it's gonna get weirder. The world is losing population. Some people are celebrating that. They think it's probably the best thing in the world to uh, uh, eventually give this whole piece of ground called the world back to the birds and the bees. A lot of us don't think that's probably the best for civilization and humankind. But, but guys, look at This place is like a petri dish of sometimes bizarre conspiracy theories. I mean, come on, okay? We are in a population decline. The entire world is starting to severely, it's peaking out. So what does that mean? What's the future look like? I mean, I don't want to stand here and, you know, uh, talk about uh, our wax and wane on AI and robots and you don't need people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of crazy. But why are we still losing teachers? We've been through this. It's not, it's not, the, the future's already happened in the past. It's going to happen again if nothing changes. Um, what do you think of the pension bill that passed the Senate? Uh, folks are saying that that might be a good recruitment retention tool. That's not what we're um, picking up on in various discussions, but also pieces of research. I'm a tier one, for, uh, uh, full, full disclaimer, I'm a tier one retiree. I was a teacher. But younger folks appear to be less interested in that. Um, can you grab me a glass of water? You, you, another, not tell you what to do at night, you know, but um, oftentimes I read the uh, history of the Constitution and the actual framers and their statements in there. The, 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 the framers of the Constitution wanted a very strong executive. They wanted decisions made and things executed. I believe if they were awake today, they were with us today, they'd be somewhat shocked. I, still can't, I still can't believe that. I mean, and then the fact that he like came out of that news conference and a lot of the outlets, like the Anchorage Daily News didn't do a bunch of reporting on it. Yeah, I think it was like ludicrous and i think that there was probably i would be kind of, i don't I haven't talked to anybody there but i would be kind of curious like what the news room conversations were about it like what do we do with this right like i i think i said it's you know charitably described as like a temper tantrum right like yeah 
Anyway, yeah, and, and he like had the gall to go onto Twitter and whine that the Anchorage Daily News hadn't written about it. I know? want and more I think, coverage of my insane press conference. And it's like please. I think that it was probably <laughs> hard to find a polite way to say the governor had a temper tantrum. You know? Yeah. So well, and the the school stuff is is so much bigger than like there's a sort of a glee in the in the situation that Juno's mm-hmm. in where we had a we had a, an accounting problem and. Dunleavy's like, oh, we're not picking on Juno. We're, you know, you can just hear in his voice, like, oh yes, this is so good for us. And, and the, uh, you know, like the thing is that Juno is not the only school district with structural deficit. Like Anchorage School District has a structural deficit of of ninety eight million dollars, which is like one thousand six hundred and forty five dollars per student. Fairbanks has a twenty nine million million dollar deficit, which is about two thousand three hundred fifty dollars per student. Juno's structural deficit is. Uh, 9.5 million with the counting errors, and that's 1900 per 1979 yeah. or something. And so they're all kind of in the same range, even with the counting yeah. errors. That like the school districts across the state, and there there was a great article that went into more detail on all these other districts. But school districts have been f- flat funded for so long that th- that they have these giant holes in their accounting and now everyone's everyone has to consolidate they're cutting programs anchorage is talking about rolling in the ignite program which is their gifted talented program the all of the arts teachers and all of the health teachers all those teachers 60 some odd teachers would have to go reapply for jobs as as steam teachers and then come back in to this new and these are elementary school teachers and they'd have to come back in and do this new hybrid uh integrated curriculum uh, that has no has no curriculum written for it yet, so you'd have to reapply for your a different job than the job you have now, where you're now an an arts math science teacher, and you have to develop the whole new curriculum for it for for next year. Yeah. That's a tough thing, you know. In Juno, we're talking about are we going to consolidate our high schools? Are we going to consolidate our middle school? Like, how do we do? We shift the grades around. What was it? Uh, Kenai is looking at a four day school week. They mm-hmm. might be, you know, like, oh, great. I hope, hope you're not doing anything Friday, parents. <laughs> so, well, I think that... And, like, and all of this could be fixed with a with a BSA increase. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, we talk about, you know, the governor kind of crows about how these districts are, mis, you know, they're just mismanaging their funds. They're folded with accounting errors. And it's like, yeah, if there isn't an, accounting errors, that they don't have enough money, right? Like, that's just the, the simple <laughs> matter of the fact is that, like... Yeah. Yeah, there is a financial problem with these school districts. It's that they don't have enough money. And I think, too, when you talk, it's interesting you bring up all these different elements of, of what, what is going to happen, right? And I think that it's exactly like the opposite of how we want education policy to be done, right? Like we want to, our education policy to be evidence-based. We want it to be proven. We want it to be like dependable, reliable, and equitable. But that requires like time and money and dependability and stability to be able to do it. And instead what we're doing is we're like creating on the fly, new curriculum to like just survive. Right. And I think that is exactly why like we have, we talk about all these struggles with like school achievement and school performance. And it's because like the schools are in constant crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Like they are this rapid over, you know, rapid, uh, turnover of of administrators of the uh, of teachers of principals of support staff all that sort of stuff plays into like the difficulty uh, in in achievement right like if you think about like my time as a student my best teachers are the ones that were around had been around for a, a little while at least it wasn't right. the brand new guys 
frequently also wasn't well, the some, very very old guys either but, <laughs> so, but there's I, that, like, I, had, I had good new teachers and good old teachers but a lot of them had long careers yeah and, and i think that like you know we we're seeing now where it just doesn't you know make sense to be a teacher in some ways you know it, it's such a difficult job i think like anybody who's leaving it i know i have friends who are leaving it right who i i I look at them, I look at what they're going through, and I to me it's like such a loss that they feel like they have to leave it. But at the same time, it's like also survival in a way. Like it, it, for them, you know, the situation is just so difficult that it's easier to like say, no, I'm good. And like that's that's why we're having problems, right? Like that's why yeah. this is so difficult and so challenging for a lot of people right now. Murkowski's speech to the legislature had uh, a line about we have to invest in our in our kids' education, and it got big applause, uh, but only from about half the room. It was yeah. really interesting to see yeah, the slow pan across yeah. of, like, you know, there's Dan Sadler kind of, like, sl- slouching and pretending yeah. not to be seen, and, there, you know, like, there's, like, all the all the guys that are, like, Johnson's in the back, like, hunching yeah. down and looking Mike over. Mike Cronk. Yeah. Yeah. Big, you know, Mike you know, Cronk. And it's like, who doesn't applaud, like the, yeah. who doesn't applaud, like, we have to invest in our kids' education? Like, I, I know that it's a little bit loaded at a time when we're trying to get school funding, but, like, who thinks that that's a bad idea come on i know right and i think it, it, it there's such a vilification of teachers and in the school system that you know i think it's important to remember right is that a lot of the animosity towards schools is like a, there's other ulterior motives contained in that right that there are you know there's a huge desire by dunleavy and his cronies to like work us toward vouchers right right to work us toward public dollars towards private religious schools and that's you know we are steps away from that still uh many many steps away from that but it's it's something that's in in the i wouldn't be surprised if it's in the roadmap right they they try to do this and then the next time it's that and the next time it's that and 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 there's so many unknowns or so many things that they're unwilling to identify at this point but you know that they have machinations or plans for it if if given the uh, green light like on the charter school stuff right they say that oh you know it's all gonna be ha- don't worry about it like the funding of these is all gonna be handled in regulation it's fine it's fine we'll be all taken care of uh i don't you trust them that? right yeah, we've, no. yeah we haven't seen that you know and we've seen what they can do via right re- you know what they think they can do via regulation too with the transports ban with other stuff like that so yeah, it's yeah. gonna be a. Uh, it'll be an interesting uh, three years here, huh? As we uh, navigate yeah. the the rest of the Dunleavy administration. I, I guess the the silver lining here for me is that I think next year we could see a real change in the House. Mm-hmm. I think that this education issue in an election year is gonna force some some good positive change in the House. You know, I think like people like Craig Johnson, like he's been a he's been a dead end for this and a lot of other legislation mm-hmm. and. He's in a very vulnerable district. He's in a he's in a district that uh, went for Murkowski. He's in a district that went Paltola. That you know they all performed really well in. That Kathy Giesel represents. Like he could be out on his ear over this education issue pretty yeah. easily. And there's others that are in the same boat. Um, so I th- I think that there's I think that there's a real threat to uh, the conservatives in the House who are holding up education funding um in an election year and i think that there's gonna be positive outcomes next year so maybe we don't get our maybe we maybe we don't get a you know fourteen hundred dollar bsa increase this year maybe we get a three hundred dollar bsa increase this year but then we get a real bsa increase next year and it's you know maybe it's maybe we're gonna have to just get through this year and and 
feel that pain before we can do something about it. But I, but hopefully, you know, schools are something that reach a lot of families. Schools are something that reach a lot of Alaskans. People know there's a problem that needs to be fixed, and they're going to probably come out and vote mm-hmm. to fix those problems. Right. So. So that's kind of my silver lining is that I think that there's, you know, I love this. The Senate seems well aligned. They haven't been having, you know, like there's not a lot of visible infighting. Uh, they seem to be working together really well. And I think that if we had a house that was similar, similarly aligned, it, we would be in a really good spot for the future of the state. And so, you know, we still got a governor that we need to replace, but that's, but it feels like if it feels like we could start kind of moving in the right direction. Yeah. I think I think that's a pretty astute observation. Yeah. yeah. Alrighty. Well, All righty. All right. Well, I'm gonna uh, go. Speaking uh, about the education bill that we've been w- waiting for is scheduled to appear on the House floor on Monday. So. Oh, in in its current form, or we'll or see. What's the so well, they've been, yeah I mean we'll they've been see. backdoor dealing on this right so they've had a conf- uh, like a secret conference committee of three in the house and three in the senate and they've come up with a plan that's going to pass and what, what does that look like i mean we'll see i don't know i don't know if they really do have a plan i mean they might be just trying to get it done with i mean so I they're think, just and put it on the and floor and have and 70 and amendments and, and see where it goes 100 amendments i think is what i heard oh wow um i think that they're really i think that it's i think the house realizes how much infighting and sort of trouble they are in with the sort of the i mean they have a, you know they have a, effectively a 30 20 person majority yeah there and when you consider that the rural members the three independent and democrat ones uh aren't like super on board with a lot of what they're doing uh it leaves them at 20 you know having to appeal to either eastman or someone in the minority for your 21st vote and I think that part of the reason why they were put, you know, rocket strap on the back of this bill in the first place is just to get it out of there. Like it was they knew education was going to be this sort of ticking time bomb for them. And it was. But I think they would very much like to just be able to, like, hot potato it out of there and mm-hmm. uh, get it into a conference committee. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I haven't I haven't been digging on this one, but it'll be interesting to see where that one goes. Have you been hearing stuff about it? Like if not a I've- lot. Not yeah. a lot, yeah. I've been hearing a few things here and there, but it's the what kind of gets back to me is that the people who are negotiating on it don't necessarily have the power to negotiate. And so it seems like there's a lot of, um, you know, like kind of hypothetical decision making that, that may not go anywhere. And I think throw it all into chaos with 100 amendments for sure. Yeah. And so I think that's where the conference committee is ultimately the one that makes you know does that negotiation right mm-hmm. so we'll see what gets out of the house and what gets the conference committee and maybe i guess what are the options there like you know this process better than i do the conference committee can amend it uh to to fill in the kind of the gaps and the differences between the two bills uh or they can just not pass it at all or what what what's what are we looking at there once it goes to conference committee there's sort of two stages where you can go in and you can either sort of choose between the two different bills, two different versions on each point. You can either take the Senate side or the House side, and you can kind of work through that. Yeah. That's sort of the the usual process because legislators don't like it getting out of control. And so, but if that fails, you can go for a free powers uh, conference committee, which has to be a new committee. It has, it has to be all new members, mm-hmm. which I don't know how much that really matters. But then... They could just change it however they want. 
And typically, if you get to that point, it's a good sign that the legislation is just dead because there's not there's not an agreement um, to be found. But does it have to be ratified uh, by the bodies, or is that just yeah? Those, so it ha- that- yeah. So any version, either version, would have to return to uh, the both chambers for approval. Oh, okay. All right. So, so either way, if it goes to conference committee, it does have to come back to both chambers. Yeah. Okay. And if it's not approved by one chamber, it fails. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it seems like this bill yeah. has a pretty hard walkway ahead of it. Yeah, it has... well, another ele- important element, and the thing to kind of keep in mind here, too, is that the underlying bill, the Internet for Schools, is a time-critical piece of legislation that is also, surprise, needed to, to you know, uh, access federal funds. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there, there has been movement to just uh, move. There's a House version of that bill that is clean still. Uh, I think I got a hearing this last week in the House Finance Committee, which basically indicates that there's like, let's just cut our losses with that other bill and we'll just move the Internet with schools forward. So, yeah. heck, there could be, you know, they could be end up being that they move this education bill forward and they just say, let's just go back to the one that we could all agree on, which is the Internet upgrades right. and just do that. And so there's that's possible here. It, um, there's a lot of different tracks to take it on, right? Because I think... That the time is really getting of the essence with these um, internet uh, yeah. grants. So well, it's nice chatting with you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Um, maybe after this uh, education bill hits the floor, and we yeah. have some idea of what's happening with it. Sounds good. All right, talk to you later. Bye, Matt. All right, bye. Hello, this is Pat Race. Thanks for listening to our show. If you're interested in supporting our work, you can find Matt Buxton's Alaska Memo newsletter and subscribe to that. It's a really great resource, and it's at akmemo.com. And if you'd like to support my work, it's uh, Patreon slash Alaska Robotics, and uh, that supports this podcast, the time it takes to edit it, and uh, also just a lot of like drawing cartoons and watercolors and things like that. All right. Hey, uh, thanks a lot for listening. Over and out.